The views expressed on this show by guests and the host on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 truth. Welcome to 9-11 Freefall. I'm the host, Andy Steele. Today, we're joined by Ted Walter and Roland Angle. Uh, Ted is the Director of Strategy and Development here at AE 9-11 Truth. He holds a Master's of Public Policy degree from the University of California, Berkeley. And prior to his current role with AE, he was the Director of NYC CAN's 2014 High Rise Safety Initiative. Uh, he was a Volunteer Campaign Manager for the AE 9-11 Truth Rethink 9-11 campaign that was back in 2013. And he was director of NYC CAN's uh, 2009 ballot initiative. And he's the lead author of the 50-page booklet, Beyond Misinformation, and also the 13-page World Trade Center Physics publication, uh, as well as AE 9-11 Truth's 2020 request for correction to the NIST WTC7 report. So he's been responsible for a lot of things. We're going to begin his input here today on a new matter. Ted, welcome to 9-11 Freefall. Hey, Andy. Good to be back. And of course, he is joined by Roland Angle. Roland is the CEO of AE 9-11 Truth. He graduated from the University of California, Berkeley with a Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering and became a licensed civil engineer in California. Uh, he served in the U.S. Army Special Forces, where he was trained in the use of explosives. His 50 years of engineering experience has included designing and testing of blast-hardened missile launch facilities and designing U.S. naval explosive containers, as well as harbor terminal facilities, earth foundation systems, and hydraulic systems. In addition, Roland has owned three construction companies and has taught engineering subjects to high school students, which is a very important uh, skill to have when bringing this information to people. So let's go ahead and bring him in. Welcome back, Roland. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. So why are we all converging here today on free fall? Well, let me tell you, earlier in the week, or maybe it was last week, we got an email from a supporter asking for our commentary on a video. Uh, and we're going to be uh, playing clips from that video today. And just to give you some context, this is a person, his name is and I, I don't want to mispronounce it. Uh, I'm going to try my best. About Najib Abad. If I said it incorrectly, I'm sure Ted will correct me. Uh, but he's Najib a managing principal. What is it? Was, Najib Abud, I think, is what I gathered from watching the presentation. All right. Well, that, yeah, we want to make sure we get everything uh, correct here, including the pronunciations, because he says some things uh, about the World Trade Center destruction that uh, we take some contention with, you'll be seeing later, but he's a managing principal of Thornton Tomasetti. He held a senior position at the Weidlinger Associates until it merged with uh, Thornton Tomasetti in 2015. He led Weidlinger, uh, Weidlinger, sorry, Weidlinger studies of the World Trade Center failures. 
is also a new board member of the Skyscraper Museum, which is why he was invited to give this presentation. This is on the Skyscraper Museum's uh, YouTube channel. And the presentation appears to be um, part of a series called Remembering 9-11, Before, After, and Since. And this particular seminar is entitled Engineer Stories Since 9-11. So that's the background. Uh, Ted, if there's anything more to say in, in setting up this uh, these clips that we're going to be playing tonight and discussing, please add it. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, you shared the video with us that the supporters sent and uh, Roland and I both watched it um, as did, I think, a couple other people. And, you know, we both had some important comments to share about it. And we think it's actually a pretty um, it gives us a, a, you know, a platform to touch on a pretty important issue regarding uh, the World Trade Center failures and the various investigations into those failures um, that, is, that is, you know, not that well known about even by, you know, researchers or, you know, activists in the 9-11 truth movement, which is how there's all these conflicting um, theories about how the buildings came down due to fire. There's not just one theory. Um, there's, there's a few theories, both regarding the Twin Towers and regarding Building 7. And, and I think it's important to for, for people to know that and to ask what that means. What, is it, what does it mean that actually there's not just one fire-based theory? And to me, it means, and we'll get into this, I think, as we discuss it further, but it, that, you know, the authors of the official story, the authors of progressive collapse theory can't get their story straight. Um, and I think if there were, um, you know, I think if there was an obvious answer to how this building came down due to fire, you wouldn't have all these different groups of um, engineers studying it and coming to totally, actually totally different conclusions about how fire brought the building down, it, it would have been pretty straightforward. Of course, we have a very straightforward theory uh, that doesn't involve fire, which is controlled demolition. Um, and so I think as we get into it, we'll see the reason why you have all these different theories is because all of these different groups of engineers started with a conclusion and then tried to come up with a story uh, to fit that conclusion, to lead to that conclusion. And um, so, yeah. I think it, this is a very important topic for us to to discuss further, and, and I know Roland has a lot to um, add about it as well. So that's right, and I've said it before on the show: their stories keep changing all the time. Our stays the same, and even out of officialdom, they did start with a conclusion. They took controlled demolition off the table from day one, and that is where the evidence leads. So that is my thoughts, uh, Roland. After you watch this, and we're going to have time to get into the details and look at what this guy is is telling his audience um <clears throat> but just after you watch this what was your initial impression overall of the presentation Najib Abud is a is a considered to be one of the primary authorities on the collapse of the towers he uh along with another engineer by the name of Levy uh are the authors of the Weidlinger study that was commissioned by Silverstein, Silverstein uh, Properties, the World Trade Center Properties, was uh, sued in uh, after the event in 2002 uh, because the claim was that the buildings uh, were, that, that, that it was two separate incidents. It was part of Silverstein trying to get uh, double payment for his insurance. So he was claiming that the attacks on the North and the South Tower were two separate events, and therefore he was entitled to collect the amount of the insurance for each event. 
Whereas the insurance company was saying, no, it was just one event and you, you're not entitled to double payment. So Weilinger conducted this study of how the buildings came down. And they, this study was not released actually at the time that the lawsuit was decided in Silverstein's favor, by the way. Uh, and it wasn't released until like 2015. So it wasn't available for us to look at until then. And what's interesting about the study is the fact that they claim that the mechanism, we're, the, the essential aspect here is what initiated the collapse of the towers? What, what, what was the mechanism that occurred that caused the towers to begin to collapse? And the Weidlinger study, which Abud was one of the main authors from, claimed that the central core of the buildings failed and that's why the uh, collapse mechanism was initiated. However, in the meantime, if you go back to 2005, when the National Institutes of Standards and Technology issued their report, they claim that the initiating event was the collapse of the floor trusses in the impact area due to the fire. And that pulled in the perimeter columns and that was what initiated the event. Well, those are two completely different uh, mechanisms. And from our standpoint, from the engineering standpoint, it's crucial that we understand exactly what happened. And when you have the two, two major engineering establishments, on the one hand, Weidlinger, a, a reputable, well-known uh, firm, and on the other hand, NIST, saying two completely different things about what happened, uh, that is a problem for our uh, profession. We need to resolve those kinds of things. And over time, these differences uh, about theories should be ironed out, but it's clear that they haven't been. So that's what's interesting about this video and what it, how it fits into the context of what's happened. Exactly. And I'll tell you what, that supporter who wrote in wanting us to give a response to this, they're going to be getting more than they bargained for tonight. We're dedicating a whole show to it. So congratulations to him for bringing it to our attention. So let's dive in. Uh, we're going to play the first clip from this video. And Andy, before you, um, before you play, could you show those quotes uh, just to help frame the conversation a little further? Uh, sure. Which quote would you like? Because, uh, and by the way, is it sort of acting as producer tonight because we've got some very specific things we want to show you. Which one is it going to be? The uh, the Shankar Nair quote, and then sure, we'll the. Add that in. All right. All right. So well, already you... there. Oh, go ahead. You go for it, Andy. All right. Already there is near consensus as to the sequence of events that led to the collapse of the World Trade Center. All right. Note, and, note yeah. the date. Note the date. The date was September 19th, 2001, so eight days after 9-11. Uh, and this is an engineer based in Chicago who did have involvement in the FEMA investigation that was conducted in 2001 and 2002, as well as, um, and I'm pretty sure that he was um, involved in the NIST investigation as well as a consultant 
Um, and I think I wanted to bring this quote to everybody's attention, you know, for a couple of reasons. But first of all, I think it's absolutely ludicrous that eight days after this event, that there could be any sort of consensus um, or even striving to have consensus about how the buildings came down. Um, it's really odd. You know, nobody has really done any investigation yet. Um, it also shows this inclination to want to claim that there's consensus when there might not actually be. Um, and that's what we'll see throughout this presentation. It's not just that Najib Aboud and Weidlinger have a different theory from, from NIST. Um, it's that he tries to claim that there's, and he uses these words as we'll see, that there's a convergence um, on, on the root causes here or what have you. Um, and so why is it that they're trying to claim that there's consensus? Um, you know, I, I think that as we'll see here, I think we'll see that, you know, Najib Aboud realizes um, that there's some, that there is something wrong, as Roland pointed to, that there's something wrong when there's actually two quite different theories about how these buildings came down due to fire. And so he wants to try to claim that there's consensus. Uh, I think the fact of the matter is that the only consensus that there is among these um, engineers who are all, you know, very established in, in the industry um, is that it was fire. And beyond that, there's not really a whole lot of consensus. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty astounding quote on, on several levels. Well, to be able to come up with a consensus within 19 days of this event taking place is utterly ludicrous. I mean, I guess Zedendik Bazant came up with his own theory uh, in a shorter amount of time after the towers came down, but you really can't know until you have a study and you get into the pile and at ground zero and really dive into uh, you know looking at everything that was left behind. Uh, now let's look at our second quote here. This one is from NIST. The WTC towers in World Trade Center 7 are the only known cases of total structural collapse in high-rise buildings where fire played a role. That is from August of 2002. Uh, beginning with Ted, your comments? Yeah, so this, this quote is from NIST's investigation plan that NIST issued in August of 2002 when it launched its investigation. And that's actually the date, the official start date of the NIST investigation. So this, this quote is mainly, we're just trying to illustrate here that essentially NIST stated their conclusion um, at the outset of their investigation. Um, we also see here um, that, as NIST admits, that these are the only buildings that have allegedly collapsed due to fire. Um, so obviously that's important to note and many people are aware of that, but not a lot of people are aware of the fact that NIST actually stated the conclusion um, in, in, their, in the plan for the investigation before they even started. And I think that's why ultimately what's responsible here for, sorry, I want to make a few, what's responsible here for um, people coming to different, um, having different explanations is that, again, they all have a specific conclusion in mind and then they, and then they sort of do their analysis to, you know, arrive at that conclusion. Um, and as, we, as Roland alluded to, sometimes they had very specific things that they needed to prove beyond just the building collapse due to fire. In the case of Najib Aboud, it was very specific that they, they the whole purpose of the investigation, um, I mean, you could say implicitly it was also to try to show that it came down due to fire and not controlled demolition because he was, you know, um, that would not be an acceptable um, finding. Um, but also he needed to prove that the collapse of the South Tower did not contribute to the collapse of the North Tower so that they could establish that those were two separate events. Um, but yeah, so that's that, that's the reason for bringing this quote to light. Roland, your thoughts? 
Well, these two things are completely contradictory. On the one hand, you have an engineer who was involved in the study and, and uh, the analysis saying eight days after the event that they had already decided what the, what the uh, theory was, that they had nailed it. And then NIST admitting later in year, later when the report, when their report was released, uh, the FEMA report was released at this time. And they were saying that these were extraordinary events. So if you have extraordinary events that had never occurred in history, but you've come to the conclusion about what happened within eight days, these are, this is a non sequitur. There's, <laughs> I mean, from, from an engineering standpoint, that's, that's ludicrous. That's all, that's the only word there is for it. Absolutely. So let's dive into the videos from this presentation we began by talking about. Uh, I'm going to play the first one for you guys right now. There was a crying need to understand exactly what happened to be able to address whether the what is our vulnerability and how the towers uh, collapse. Of course, I won't indulge in the conversation around all of the conspiracy theories, but part of how we address that fear and the irrationality of some of the ideas is through a scientific uh, investigation. Ted, what are you thinking after you hear that? Uh, well, you know, obviously he uses the word conspiracy theory. Um, so, you know, I, I, you can kind of see as he's talking uh, that it's kind of in the back of his mind or it's something that he's defending against. And I think you see that, you know, these days or for the last several years when any, any, anybody who was involved in the official investigations or in supporting the official um, theory, you know, addresses this issue. They have to like sort of acknowledge that the quote unquote conspiracy theories are there and they're sort of coming from a defensive posture in a way. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of partly, I think that shows that we've had some success, made some progress over the years and popularizing, um, you know, the truth and the true science about how these buildings came down. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sorry, when I, throughout this presentation, as he talks, you can just sort of, in my view, you can sort of feel his, his guilty demeanor. Um, you know, I, doesn't seem to me like he had a lot of fun giving this presentation. Um, but yeah, so. And Roland? You know, no. Roland? I think this, this gentleman is in a very difficult position. And I think that shows, and as Ted pointed out, the, the very first thing that he talks about is pointing out that conspiracy theories are off the table. He doesn't mention what those conspiracies are but you have to point out that the official story is a conspiracy theory and he's simply trying to separate the conspiracy theory that he is advocating for from other theories. And that was evident from the first days after the attacks that the narrative was seized by the mainstream media and all notion of explosions, which were widespread and reported by the mainstream media uh, in many instances that day. Ted did a study and went back and looked at all the news clips from that day. And by far, the majority of them spoke openly about explosions. So the narrative immediately dismissed all 
discussion of explosions. They never tested for explosives or incendiaries. They deliberately ruled that off the table from the very beginning as a conspiracy theory. Uh, and that's the story that uh, the engineers that were on board had to stick to. Very difficult job because the evidence points away from it. So they had to take certain steps along the way to misdirect the uh, investigation. And, and what we're seeing here is the sort of the, the product at this point in time of where they are with that story. And unfortunately for them, the methodologies the, of the actual destruction that they have come to differ from one another uh, when attempting to explain how it occurred by fire. So this is the problem that we're going to investigate a little bit here today. Right. And they try to talk about official stories as if it is an open and shut case, but even within officialdom, and the official story is the NIST one, uh, but even within the circles that are trying to argue against us, they still don't have agreement. So it shows that they really don't have a lock on what they are saying. Uh, and I think that we have a better lock on what we are saying because we've got all the evidence to back it up, at least justify a new investigation. And I do agree with him that you avoid conspiracy theories by having a thorough scientific investigation. The problem is, is that we didn't get one. All right, you're going to see in the, this presentation tonight and even in this report, you know, this is only on the Twin Towers. They don't even mention Building 7 in this presentation, uh, but they only go up to a collapse in this geation and as Roland noted, they didn't test the dust for explosives or incendiaries. Uh, they didn't really look at the physics of how the building actually came down. They didn't take into account those uh, uh, those accounts of explosions or the extreme temperatures. They did. They basically cherry picked evidence. So we never got a scientific investigation into this. And through our research, it's not a conspiracy theory. In my view, it's what happened. But again, at the very least, it justifies a new investigation. Um, okay, let us play the next clip here. One, one moment. There was a money issue. Where do we get the money to rebuild that site? So obviously there was a litigation. That litigation compelled one of the list of five major studies that I've listed on the screen. It is the second one, it's the World Trade Center Structural Engineering Investigation that Thornton Tomasetti and Weidlinger led. The first report was issued in August 2002. Ted? Yeah, so the, you know that clip was just to help um, give a little bit more of the background that uh, Najib Aboud was, you know, the investigation, the study that he worked on was, you know, actually had a very specific agenda, which was, you know, he was working for Silverstein Properties, trying to prove that, um, you know, the, the South, the collapse of the South Tower did not contribute to the collapse of the North Tower. Um, he does, I would say throughout the presentation, he tries to frame everything as if his investigation and all the other investigations are all all working for this like um, greater um, common good. Um, you know, the only investigation that in theory was done in the public interest was the NIST investigation. Um, that it was a, you know, federally mandated investigation by the government, um, you know, taxpayer funded, et cetera. The, all these other studies um, are, uh, and there's more related to Building 7 actually, but um, are, are done for the purposes of, you know, uh, insurance payouts and, you know, uh, legal claims and so on. So, um, 
yeah, is there anything else I wanted to say about it? Um, I mean, yeah, pretty pretty much that. That's it. Um, when we, right. So it has an agenda. It has an agenda attached to it, and their agenda was that lawsuit. So that's something to keep in mind. It's not working for a greater good on their end. It's working for proving a particular thing to, uh, you know, it result in financial benefit for their clients. So right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he, the way that he frames that as being part of the greater common good is like, well, we need to rebuild the site. There's a money problem. How are you going to get the money to pay to, to, to rebuild the site? You know, oh, so through this, this lawsuit. Um, yeah. Roland, your thoughts? The, the thing that I'd like to add is that remember that this video in which Mr. Abood appears in was just recently filmed within the last month or so. So this is an occasion of the 20th anniversary of the, of the actual attacks. And I'd like to point out that there have been many, many more studies. I got one right here. This is a study that was done by uh, three civil engineering professors uh, in, uh, at Ben Ha University in Egypt. And it was published in uh, 2014. And it's uh, entitled Controlling the Demolition of Existing Structures. An approach to analyze the collapse of the World Trade Center North Tower, World Trade Center One, and they come to the conclusion. Their ultimate conclusion is that it was a controlled demolition, and uh, they say the results, uh, the finite element analysis, indicated that the structure, uh, World Trade Center One, was safe in terms of its horizontal sway and relative strength, with with the dead live and wind and impact loads that were considered and that field observations based on the analysis of the documented videos indicated that the collapse of World Trade Center One was mainly due to the implementation of the controlled implosion technique. So this is, this is a university in Egypt and a survey of all the studies that have been done on, on the World Trade Center building collapses indicates that more than half of them worldwide have come down with the uh, conclusion that it was a controlled demolition. So Mr. Abood refers to these five studies. He's completely ignoring uh, all the studies, many of which were conducted by universities overseas that have come to the conclusion that it was controlled demolition. He just simply acts as if these studies never existed. These universities and uh, engineering departments and professors don't exist. They're, they're, they've been consigned to uh, silence, nothingness. This, this is not the way, this is not the way uh, studies are, are conducted. I mean, this is not the way you survey the literature. Well, and Andy, if you could just show that video again, uh, just to, so, so people and pause it so people can see the list of studies. You know, it's it's meant to encompass both. There was a litigation. Yeah. That litigation compelled one. Yeah. So he, he's listing studies here that are, that not only about the towers but about Building Seven. Um, and oddly, you know, even even for including the studies that are in his sort of orbit, he oddly excludes uh, the other study about Building Seven by the, the engine, you know, by the engineers uh, working for the opposing side in that litigation which was Arab and um, Guy Nordenson. So he's selective in that way. And of course he leaves out 
um, you know, the study by Professor Leroy Halsey at the University of Alaska Fairbanks regarding Building 7. So he, he has that little bullet point that says, you know, and others. Um, but there's, as Roland said, there's many, many others. Um, and and, and others who disagree with me. <laughs> exactly. And uh, it's not a surprise that they would leave that study out. And again, it's just another example. You cherry pick whatever agrees with you in order to push your narrative. And uh, we see that we've been seeing that all the time in the mainstream media, but of course, academia and engineering institutions and people pushing these official reports on behalf of the government and their clients aren't above that either. Um, all right, so let me just remove that. And uh, let's play the next clip here. So uh, I think it's important to understand and that's not part necessarily of the public narrative as to the sheer amount of investigation and brains and totally independent bodies. So this is not the voice of one side. This is the voice of many scientists and engineers from different groups looking at it. And I would say at the end of the day, the conclusions largely are converge around certain specific findings that I'll mention at the end. All right, Ted, your comments? Yeah, so this is where Mr. Abood makes his key claim that there is a consensus, there's a convergence, um, um, and that this science has been done by lots of independent teams of engineers arriving at the same conclusion, more or less the same conclusion. Um, again, we see that tendency to try to claim consensus uh, when even within the group of engineers um, who believe that it was, or say that they believe it was fire that brought the buildings down, they have different theories. Um, I think when we get to the end, we'll see that he actually hasn't proven at all that there's a consensus. He just shows that his theory is completely different from, from NIST and he doesn't actually he doesn't actually address it. And he doesn't talk about how NIST theory is slightly different. He doesn't talk about the NIST theory at all. Um, so it's, um, it's interesting that the tendency to try to claim that there's a consensus. Roland? Yes, I, I think he's, I think this video is aimed at a, a general lay public, people that may not understand some of the, the, the nuances that he's uh, relying on here to mislead people. When he says there's a general consensus, what he means is that amongst the people that were associated with conducting the studies for the government, either as a contractor or directly for NIST, that they have a consensus that it was fire that brought the buildings down. So that <laughs> that's true, but that doesn't explain how fire brought the buildings down. I mean, from an engineering standpoint, it's not enough for us to say fire brought the building down. How did the fire bring the building down? What exactly happened? Let's see what happened. And the conclusion that he comes to which he alludes to, which he'll get to later, is that in the case of the North Tower, the core columns failed, and that was the initiating event that brought the building down. But NIST, the official government story about how that building came down, has a completely different initiating event. That is the floor trusses failed. So where's the consensus? I mean, from an engineering standpoint, you might say there's no consensus there. They don't, they don't really have consensus here because they're giving us two explanations for what happened. 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, basically, no, what you have here is a group of people who have agreed to get their stories straight. That's all that I'm seeing here. And, uh, you know, again, that bullet point and others, well, there's a lot of others who are mixed in to that little, uh, you know, that, that, that title there, including the University of Alaska Fairbanks, the, the University out of Egypt that Roland cited, and of course there are 3,500 architects and engineers who sign our petition, and all of the people that support us as well who, I mean, they may not be engineers uh, out in the, those tens of thousands, but they do have two eyes, they do have common sense, and this is their country that this happened in, they do have an opinion that is valid as well, because it is instinctive when you watch, for instance, Building 7 go down. I mean, you've never seen a, site, a, a high rise, steel frame high rise go down like that because of fire before. Why did it happen on that day? And then you get the explanation from NIST and it does not make any sense to anybody who applies their, uh, their reasoning and logic to it. So no, there is no consensus. Just because somebody says there is, doesn't make it so. Um, so let's go to the next clip here because I feel like we're on fire. Ultimately, which proves much more lethal is that big regions that are highlighted in yellow in a second are regions where columns survived but got stripped of their fireproofing but by that flow of debris across the space. And ultimately, it is the fire that brings down the building. All right, so they, they say that very assertively and they punctuate it at the end, but that again does not make it so. Ted, we'll start with your thoughts. Well, I think this is mo more Roland's bailiwick, but you know, the, the one thing that's important to understand where, where these two studies do agree is that the alleged dislodgement of fireproofing was an essential uh, step in uh, the buildings coming down. That the if it was just the air, the airplane damage to the columns and then the fires that the um you know the, the floors would not have sagged or in the case of the widelinger study the columns would not have would not have been weakened um, without the removal of lots of fireproofing across uh several floors um roland wanted to play this clip because uh and point out that the, there was really only one study that was done to like really by nist to look at the dislodgement of fireproofing, what would result from the planes going into the building and sort of, you know, shattering into all these um, small pieces of debris and allegedly stripping all this fireproofing. Um, and it was a very rudimentary, primitive study that was done where they did something like shot a shotgun uh, many times at some fireproofing. And really, you know, you look at the photos of that, of that study and, you know, you kind of see that this fireproofing <clears throat> doesn't come off that easily. I mean, if you just grab the fireproofing, you could probably pull it off. But the idea of that in a, in a, in a, you know, split second, there's going to be all this debris that just flows through the building and just like cleans all the steel of its fireproofing. Pretty fantastic idea. And if you, if you show that, show that picture of the fireproofing, um, that, uh, I believe you have the, the, uh, what's it called? NIST fireproofing experiment. Yeah, so Here it comes. There you go. Last you get, imagine like lots of little shards of airplane flying everywhere and just being able to strip all this, um, you know, all these columns and trusses and so on of their of their fireproofing uh, in a split second. It's pretty, pretty ludicrous. Um, so, yeah, and, and unsubstantiated. 
and and yet an essential part of their story. NIST says if it wasn't for the fireproofing being dislodged, the, these buildings wouldn't have come down. Roland, your thoughts? The actual test that you see here on the screen was conducted by NIST. And actually, when you get into the details of that study, you find out that their findings actually disproved their own theory that they're putting forward. This is, this is all published in the, uh, in the uh, NC Star Report 16A Appendix C, page 263 through 274, you can find this study. And what they note is this is their study. The, uh, they say that the aircraft velocity when it impacted the North Tower was 95 meters per second. And at three tenths of a second after impact, the velocity of the, of the debris, the, the plane is now breaking up because it's hit the exterior perimeter columns, which are very substantial. So the uh, impact shatters the plane into debris. And after three tenths of a second, the velocity of that debris is 38 meters per second. This is their study, okay? I'm quoting you their studies. Uh, a tenth of a second later, four tenths of a second after impact, the velocity is 15.8 meters per second. So that's the velocity that they're saying uh, uh, most of this debris impacted the uh, interior of the uh, building with. However, during their testing, when they fired the shotgun at these uh, samples, uh, one of the, uh, they note that on one occasion, the, uh, the shotgun misfired and produced an impact of 31 meters per second. So that is uh, somewhere in between three tenths of a second and four tenths of a second. And so it would be more indicative of what the actual impact was. And uh, as opposed to the higher velocity that the shotgun muzzle velocity is. And they note that at that, on that particular misfire, there was no significant damage to the fireproofing. So, They've got a test that give them the uh, velocity of the debris that they claim was occurring, and it indicated that there was no significant damage to the fireproofing. So buried in the footnote of their own test is the evidence that disclaims the claim that they're making. So the claim that, and the claim that fireproofing was removed from the steel is central, absolutely central to their notion that the uh, interior columns failed due to fire uh, after the impact, and that's what caused the collapse. So again, when you look at the details and you look at the evidence, you find evidence that actually refutes what they're saying. So this is, this is again, reason to cast uh, doubt on their whole methodology, because it seems as if they're willing to ignore all evidence that doesn't point them in the direction where they have already decided they're going to go. And that's par for the course for them. Now, I was looking at my notes last night and getting prepped for the show, and you can tell me if this is true or not, but I believe NIST says that the collapse initiated on the 98th floor of the North Tower 
And as far as I know, the only the tip of the wing kind of you know slashed right through that part of it. So you know, in theory, just thinking about it, uh, you know, if it's just the tip of the wing hitting that floor, you're not going to have a lot of fire proofing dislodged on that floor but the collapse is actually initiating there above where all the damage uh you know was when the plane went in can i have uh, some comments on that roland i think you might know more about that than me i i'm I, i've heard it discussed that the collapse initiated higher than where most of the damage was um but perhaps you know more well that's true and that's that is where the collapse initiated because, and they have to stick to that because you can run the videos and the, over and over again, and there's no denying that. That's where the collapse started. So then the question, as Andy rightly points out, is how come if only the tip of the wing contacted the 98th floor and supposedly it was the fireproofing that was stripped off of the structural members that caused the uh, members there to be overheated, there couldn't have been any fireproofing dislodged from the structural elements on the 98th floor because there was essentially no contact there. So how did how, how do those uh, anomalies resolve? How could the uh, 98th floor have been the point where the collapse initiated when there was very little damage to the 98th floor? In fact, the NIST report, they don't even show a schematic for the damage on the 98th floor. So again, you have anomalies, you have, you, you, you have information that they uh, present to you and then conclusions that they draw from that in the case of the Weidlinger report. How does the Weidlinger report explain that uh, it was the central core columns that initiated the collapse when the initiated when the core columns couldn't possibly have been damaged by the so-called damage from the debris uh, at that level? These are imponderables. They, in, internal inconsistencies in the reports, in, in any particular report, and then amongst the reports uh, compared one to the other. Exactly. Now, you mentioned or asked how do they resolve that. I'll tell you how they're going to resolve that. They're going to call anyone a conspiracy theorist who brings it up. There you go. Case closed. Of course, I'm kidding. Um, all right, let's go ahead and bring up the next uh, clip. I hope I have the right one here. Whoops. The fire that started by having the fuel disperse across entire floors and light up simultaneously. The temperatures reached are no different than a regular office fire. What is different about them is the simultaneous nature of them across multiple floors and up to four uh, floors, that's one. People talk about an explosion that arose from the south side of the North Tower. That is more like an aerosol can, mist that you inflame. It's a deflagration, not an explosion. That consumed about a third of the fuel. A third dispersed on the impact floor and started the fires. The last third went down the core of the building and that is why you hear stories of fires erupting in the lobby at the base of the towers. All right, so uh, let's just follow our regular trend here. We'll start with Ted, your comments. Sure, well, um, Roland wanted to Roland wanted to play this, this clip and address the fuel, um, a third of the fuel burning up immediately, a third going into the 
damaged floors and then a third going down the building. Um, you know, this is not the time, this is not the focus of this presentation, but the idea that a third of the fuel traveled all the way down the building and, and shot out numerous floors, not just the lobby level or the basement, but uh, numerous floors and cause explosions on those floors is pretty ludicrous. The kind of explosions that could cause the damage that we saw in the lobby with very thick glass um, being, you know, being blown out uh, in the lobby when the firefighters um, arrived a few minutes after the first plane hit the North Tower. Um, so, so there's that. Um, I think there's anything else. I mean, he, he acknowledges that the, the temperatures were only were mainly that of normal office fires. Um, and so I think that's important to note because he makes some pretty extraordinary claims, I think, in the next clip that we're going to show where he talks about right. some very high temperatures. Right. Uh, Roland? <clears throat> I've never, this is the first time I've heard the claim that a third of the fuel entered the elevator shafts and traveled all the way down to the uh, lobby level where it caused massive damage. And I, I think it'd be very easy to prove that if you look at the volume of the elevator shaft all the way down to the lobby uh, and uh, the expansion of the gas, which let's say there was, if, if they're claiming a third of the fuel entered the uh, elevator shafts, that that fuel would already be uh, exploded because the the impact with the the fire caused by the impact and the fuel, as we can see, when the planes hit the building, there was a massive explosion. Well, that explosion would would be throughout the area, the volume that the gas occupied, including the elevator shafts. So I think it'd be very easy to prove that the volume of gas that you're talking about that was exploding could not possibly have caused the kind of damage at the lobby level that they claim, given the fact that it had to travel all the way down uh, 95 floors through the elevator shafts and then cause uh, 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 an explosion in the lobby that just had massive uh, impact and velocity, not happening with uh, a cloud of uh, diesel fuel, 90, 95 floors below the impact zone. It's magic. It's it's like when 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 people are faced with this data that that just doesn't work for them. All the lobby, you know, many of the lobby windows being blown out and all this damage in the lobby. They like they jump to magic basically um, to to try to explain it because they can't accept the idea and don't want to accept the idea that there were explosives you know low down in the building in the lobby area in the basement etc. Well, it seems like a pretty chintzy explanation. Even the numbers kind of sound suspect. I'd like to know how they came up with that because it's just a neat number. One third went out the side of the building. One third burned on the floors, and the other third went down the elevator shaft. That's just, that's pretty. Uh, neat and even there um but you know i don't even hear them address this very much you know and then of course reports go of, of explosions going off in the basement william rodriguez you know they don't even address this kind of stuff again they're just kind of coming up with an explanation that doesn't even really sound good when you first hear it 
<clears throat> doesn't sound like it makes any sense, but you ignore, for instance, again, William Rodriguez, which completely makes you have to go back to the drawing board if you're a real scientist. <clears throat> you know, accounts of an explosion going off before the airplane hit. But even if you don't want to believe that, you can still just look, hey, why is there explosions going off right in the basement of the building so fast as the airplane uh, is, is coming in? So, all right, let's get to the next clip here so we don't run out of time. Of course, 102 minutes later, the fires continuously weaken the steel. Steel at those temperatures doesn't melt. It just weakens. So think about at a thousand degree Fahrenheit, the steel is half as weak or half as strong as it is at ambient temperature, at normal temperature. When the temperatures here reach up to 2000 degrees Fahrenheit, the steel has lost 80% of its strength. So clearly the core is being weakened and weakened and the trusses, the hat truss is working harder and harder to try to shed the load onto surviving columns, but ultimately there's simply not enough capacity in the tower and the collapse initiates. All right, we got a lot of focus on that collapse initiation going on here in this presentation, not much else. Uh, again, we'll start with Ted. Uh, so real quick, so that we have enough time to get through everything, this one I think is pretty straightforward, uh, but he's making some claims about the temperatures being extremely high. Um, you know, I think he said 2000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is around 1100 degrees Celsius. I mean, that is an extremely hot uh, building fire that, um, you know, like temperatures typically wouldn't reach that high in a high rise fire. And, um, and there's no evidence for that. NIST did collect, did, NIST did, you know, was able to get some steel from the site and focused on areas near the impact zone. Um, and, you know, didn't find, find very few examples of temperatures rising above, you know, uh, 250 degrees um, Celsius. Uh, so, as we see with this Widlinger study of the towers, as well as Building 7, I think the way that Widlinger gets the conclusions that it gets is by assuming some extremely high temperatures. Um, and, you know, critically, when you look at the smoke that was coming from both of the buildings, it was very thick, very dark smoke, which indicates, um, you know, a, a pretty cool fire with, um, you know, not that much oxygen as well. So, these are pretty, pretty ridiculous um, temperatures that, that, that he's talking about. Roland. And again, he's ignoring the fireproofing issue. What removed the fireproofing in the lower floors? There was no impact there. Very little effect from the fire. The, the claim for a 2000 degree Fahrenheit fire is contradicts his own statement that the fires only burn with the normal office fire temperatures. So on a number of on a number of uh, points here, this argument doesn't doesn't hold any water, and we then he talks about the load redistribution overcoming the excess capacity of the columns, and that's not plausible either because the perimeter columns were only loaded to twenty percent of their capacity with the dead load. They had a safety factor of five to one. The, the core columns were loaded only at a third of their capacity. They had a safety factor of three to one. So even if you heated them up and redistributed loads and so on and so forth, you had plenty of excess capacity in those columns. They weren't gonna fail. 
They don't talk about that. Well, there's a lot they don't talk about because it doesn't fit into the official story. Um, all right. Uh, do we have the next clip ready? Uh, let me put them up just one sec. Uh, da -da. Sure. All right. Go for it. All right. It's the collapse of the North Tower. You can see it core driven in the center first, and then the outside perimeter wall uh, follow. So, how do I know that this physics calculation is meaningful? We overlay it on actual video footage on the day and keep your eye on the TV antenna at the top. And you'll see it starts coming down exactly the way the analysis predicted the collapse happened. The overlay of the calculation and the observable events is, you know, Amazingly uh, good. All right. Well, he's uh, he's very proud of his his work. First of all, I guess that's the first thing to note. Um, I think uh, one thing that is interesting. I mean, this is where we get to the crux of uh, his theory being different from NIST, uh, where he talks about you know we see in his model the core columns failing first. In according to NIST, uh, it was the perimeter columns that failed before the core columns because. Uh, the, the trusses that connect the core columns to the exterior columns, the trusses in between, sagged and pulled the um, exterior columns in until they buckled on one side and then that spread around the whole outside and then the core columns were overburdened and the, and the collapse started. Um, of course, you don't see any of the things happen that are in this theory. Um, there's no observation to support it. Um, as far as his theory goes, you know, it was that that the heat directly affected the core columns and the core columns failed first. It's interesting that that theory was, you know, NIST put that theory forward as a possibility early on in 2002, 2003, and ultimately ended up abandoning it, probably because, perhaps because they realized they couldn't get temperatures hot enough to, you know, directly weaken the core columns. Um, but what's interesting about this, you know, his theory is that it does he does account for the fact that the cork you see in the video that the antenna drop starts to drop a split second before the rest of the building which we we talk about this point as well in our own in our own presentations um and and that does indicate that the core columns are failing before the exterior so nist's uh theory of the perimeter columns failing first uh you know is not compatible with with the observation is not compatible with the video evidence. His theory is a little bit more compatible, um, but there's no way that you can get the temperatures to cause the core column failures uh, that he's talking about. Um, the other thing that I want to point out, if we maybe you want to play the video again as I'm doing it, is that it the the top of the building. So the core columns start to fail first. And the, the middle collapse of the North Tower. You can see it. Okay, great. What you'll see here, what's interesting is that the top part of the building in his model is falling and you see the top part of the building sort of disappearing into the lower part, but no damage actually being done to the lower part, which also agrees with the video evidence. The problem is that if this were actually a, a gravity-driven progressive collapse, you would see the top of the building hitting the lower part of the building and doing damage to the lower part of the building. What, what actually happened in real life was that the top of the building began to fall and began to disintegrate first before um, explosives started doing any damage 
to the lower part of the building. So you see the, the top part coming into itself, coming into the bottom part, doing no damage to the bottom part. It just goes like this, right? And so, I mean, I my, my hunch is that they're not actually doing anything to model the bottom part of the building here. They're not modeling any sort of dynamic impact that the top would be exerting on the bottom. They're just letting the top sort of disappear into the bottom. And if they were to try to model the top actually falling and having a dynamic impact on the bottom part, they would see that the top would start to slow down. They would see that the damage to the bottom, obviously there'd be damage to the bottom part and that that wouldn't actually fit with the video evidence. Um, and so like we have here an incomplete model that, you know, as I think we'll also talk about stops, you know, before, before things really get going before the real, you know, before collapse propagation. Um, this is just a, this is just a collapse initiation model. Um, and partly it works because the, the, the top is not actually interacting with the lower section. Roland. They had the contradiction that they had here was was first of all, in the FEMA report, the the team that the, the principal investigator there, the guy that led that report was a guy by the name of Gene Corley, who's now deceased. But Gene Corley, there's a video of Gene Corley uh, explaining exactly the point that the core columns must have been failing first because we can see the antenna descending before the top of the building moves. So that was a fact that Weidlinger was stuck with. Uh, NIST chooses to ignore that. They, what they point to is they, they have some video of the uh, perimeter columns uh, caving in uh, after the initiation event has occurred. And that's where they get the claim that it was the floor trusses that failed, that pulled in the perimeter columns, and that's what initiated the collapse. They didn't want to go to the, the uh, analysis that would claim that the core columns fail first because they realized, I'm sure, that they couldn't come up with uh, enough loss of strength of those columns to initiate the collapse due to fire. So they went with the pulling in of the perimeter columns as starting the event. These, uh, the, the, the Weidlinger report, which came out in 2002. This may be one of the main reasons why the Weidlinger report never saw the light of day in public until 2015, because they realized they had a contradiction between what this well-known engineering firm had to say about the collapse initiation and the analysis that NIST finally came up with. So I think that by, by delaying the, uh, the report that Weidlinger produced, they were attempting to uh, prevent people from understanding that really we have two different collapse initiation events here, which are totally at odds with one another and need to be resolved. So that was, but that's the contradiction you have when you're trying to prove something that actually didn't happen. Sorry to cut it short, folks, but we only have an hour allotted in the broadcast streams, but you can go to 911freefall.com and catch the full interview. You can watch it on video as well. So for my part, this is Andy Steele saying have a great week. Good luck.